This is the Apartment Building Investing Podcast, episode 166. Let's do this. You're listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast, where we'll talk about all aspects of buying apartment buildings with a special focus on raising money from others. And now, your host, Michael Blanc. Hey there, and welcome to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Blanc. I am super excited that you're here. Hey, I've been actually trying to get better at this social media thing. So I'm actually on Instagram and Facebook quite a bit. My handle is the Michael Blanc. That's B-L-A-N-K at the end. And uh, I'm posting there a few times every week with some live and some quotes and some uplifting stuff. So I would love to see you on social. Check it out. Follow me there and uh, give me some thumbs up and some love on social. So I would love to see you there. Today on the show, we have Brett Swartz, and what we want to talk about today is deferring taxes when we sell these properties, right? Because if we play our cards right, we'll make a bunch of money, and and then when we sell, though, we have these capital gains tax. Now, there's a 1031 exchange thing you may have heard about, which allows us to defer the capital gains. The problem is if we're syndicating and we have investors in a deal, all the investors would have to go in the 1031 exchange. Now, getting all of the investors to agree on that is probably not going to happen, which means that a 1031 exchange is going to be problematic. Now, Brett is an expert on this. He's actually a, a commercial real estate broker, but for the past several years, he's been focusing on tax deferred strategies. And we're going to talk about 1031 exchange and another strategy to help us with this particular problem. So really excited to get into that show here. Just want to remind you also that we have Dealmaker Live coming up end of July, July 26, 27. There's going to be a lot of, lot of people there. In fact, we're almost half sold out. Our VIP tickets are gone. We have Hal Elrod, the author of Miracle Morning, is going to be keynoting there. We got Robert Helms with Real Estate Guys, Joe Fairless. Uh, we got Michael Becker, uh, Corey Peterson. So we got everyone in the industry is going to be there. So you got to make sure you check it out. You go to themichaelblanc.com forward slash event and grab your tickets. And uh, I don't know where they are right now. Um, they're going to go up over time. So make sure you grab them. Uh, they're going to keep going up uh, every single month or so leading up to the event. It's going to be awesome. I'm really, really excited about the event. So it's themichaelblanc.com forward slash event. Hey, let's talk about not having to pay taxes with this real estate thing ever. So really excited to get into the show here with Brett Swartz. Let's go. Brett, welcome to the show. Michael, thank you for having me. So excited. I am so excited because we're going to talk about how to never pay taxes when we sell a piece of real estate. And so I'm really, really glad that you're here on the call. Just before we get into it here, tell us a little bit about your background and why you love this topic. Yeah. So real estate's been in my blood since a young, a young kid with uh, my father building a custom homes in the Bay Area. And then I went on to study business in college and then worked at Marcus and Millichap for a number of years as an apartment broker. And I still do help clients buy and sell commercial real estate in Northern California. But as a part of that education and that process, I learned about the 1031 exchange. And we like to say at Marcus and Millichap, you learn about the 1031 exchange on about day three. And then you're using it in every single conversation there forward. And it helps to structure deals and to look at deals in a way that is tax efficient and um, help you create and preserve more wealth. So that's my background, commercial real estate, multifamily brokerage, and that's how I kind of got started in the business. 
So one of the things I love about uh, multifamily is the tax advantages that we get. Uh, and we're not even going to talk about depreciation, bonus depreciation, cost segregation analysis, any of that kind of stuff. We're going to talk about what happens when you sell the asset. Because we play our mm -hmm. cards right, you know, we force appreciation, we increase NOI, we're actually going to increase the value of it. So we're going to sell it for some kind of gain at the end. So the one thing mm -hmm. I want to drill down on you is what are the options as a multifamily investor uh, about either avoiding or deferring that capital gains? What are some of the options uh, that we have on the table? Yes. Yeah. There's different tools that we have, right? And the, uh, the most common one is section 1031 exchange. And that helps us to uh, buy and sell investment property. And as long as you do like kind exchange, uh, equal or greater value, there's some rules to follow, then you can keep the tax deferred. And the key concept to understand is a term called constructive receipt or actual receipt. So uh, when you receive actual receipt, of the funds, that's when you the IRS is deemed that, hey, you owe the tax, Michael, on, on this particular deal. But as long as you send it to a 1031 QI company, and that QI company helps you perfect the exchange into the next property, you're still in what's called a deferral state, meaning the principal balance has been exchanged into the next property. So it's almost like investing your IRA in the sense that as long as you don't touch the money, it's like deferred. And, and this sounds like that's a, something that can be done in, in perpetuity, I suppose. Now, can you talk about the, the mechanics of a 1031? When, when is it relevant and how kind of does it work? Yeah. So the, the main part, again, is the uh, tax deferral uh, part of the 1031 exchange is not receiving the money. So technically, the funds do not, you know, I'll use Michael as an example. Let's say you're selling a $10 million property, and let's say you have a zero basis, and you would have paid $4 million in tax, about 40% with the depreciation recapture. And so your options are to receive all that cash at closing, again, which would trigger the tax being owed, or to defer it. And so you, you actually say, hey, no, I actually want to send it to a QI company. From there, let's keep it and move it into another property. And therefore, you perfect the exchange. As long, again, as it's equal or greater value, you've identified within 45 days. Typically, most of our clients will do one, two, or three properties on that particular part. And then close within 180 days of one, two, or three of those properties. The other part of it is you have to replace the debt, right? If that property you sold for 10, you owed five on, you need to also take on $5 million at least or more in debt on the next deal. Okay, so what we're doing is we're exchanging for equal to or greater than the loan balance at least, and it looks sounds like the purchase price as well. So we're not exchanging anything. We're not going downward. Where we're going either most likely most people I see are exchanging something in a higher worth. Now there's also then time frames around this stuff. You mentioned a couple that I, if I heard you correctly, you have 45 days to identify up to three projects that you want to buy, and then you have 180 days to actually close on that. Mm -hmm. Now what happens if you don't buy by that because some of me think 180 days sounds like a reasonably long number but sometimes things go wrong uh, mm -hmm. let's say the lender decides to put up a fight or some sort and it takes longer than 180 days does that fail a 1031 exchange what happens if you're not paying attention to those time frames right and so what would happen let's just say that 10 million dollar deal is in the exchange company and, and day 181 comes around and you haven't found a deal and the funds aren't moving the 1031 qi company would send you the funds and at that point you've taken actual receipt and you owe the tax now let's say you had found a seven million dollar deal and there was a three million left over and that three million we call that boot and that three million you owe the tax on so the key is what are you actually receiving at either close of escrow and or day 181 
And that amount is the amount where you're going to be hit with the capital gains tax and depreciation recapture. Okay. So I can actually quote downgrade from something, but then there's a taxable, I got to pay taxes on the difference as well. So if, if I'm, if I'm thinking of selling and you you called about a QI company, what's a QI? What does that stand for? It's a qualified intermediary, a 1031 exchange company is typically what they're known as. All right, so a qualified intermediary. So I'm thinking of selling. At what point do I call up the QI and what does that process look like moving sure. into the exchange? Yeah, early as possible. We recommend to our clients that you work with a you know, qualified QI that has a good track record and knows what they're doing and can educate and help you along the way. Um, so earlier, the better, right? You need to have the language in purchase and sale agreement or an addendum. We recommend even before the buyer removes all contingencies, typically language along the lines of seller has the right to a 1031 exchange and no additional cost to the buyer. And that establishes the language and the time frame and just the clarity of what's going to happen at close of escrow for also the escrow company who needs to know that, hey, don't send this directly to Michael, send this to uh, this particular 1031 QI company. Gotcha. All right. So you contact the QI, got to put some addendum language in there. Uh, do you guys help with that language or does the, the normal attorney do that? Where does that language come from? Yeah. So to clarify, so my company is actually not a 1031 QI company. My company is actually, we, we use the Deferred Sales Trust, which we'll talk about here in a minute. But we have our partners that are our strategic partners who we do work with. And so, yeah, we'll put them in contact with them. They'll connect with escrow and the real estate, commercial real estate broker and the client who's selling and to have that exchange agreement all in place. So because these timeframes are so strict, it could explain why sometimes we see people, quote, overpaying for apartment buildings. Like, why is this guy overpaying? Well, because he's saving like several hundred thousand dollars in taxes and he can afford to overpay. But there are problems with the 1031 exchange. What, what are some of the challenges or problems with, with that? Yes. Yeah, so I read a book, Start With Why, right? With uh, Simon Sinek. And part of what he talked about is uh, whenever you're launching a new venture, you know, what's your why behind that? And doing so many 1031 exchanges over, over my 13-year career, um, I just came into the same conversation over and over and over again, where clients are saying, hey, Brett, I'd love to do a 1031 exchange, but I don't want to overpay for a property. Or the last time I did a 1031 exchange, I overpaid because I was stressed out. I was forced into one, two, or three properties. My first two options fell apart. The, the third one was the only one left over, and I, and I had to outbid. So I overpaid. And otherwise, I wouldn't have bought the property if it wasn't for this capital gains tax between 33 and 50% of my gain being wiped out. And so you're exactly right. They're leading with buying based upon a tax deferral rather than buying based upon just the intrinsic value and cash flow opportunity that the property is. So that's the number one conversation that I had every single day for so many years. And it wasn't until my manager at the time brought in a gentleman who's now my business partner and introduced us to a strategy called a deferred sales trust, which we'll talk about in a minute. But let's also focus on the other two things about the 1031 exchange, especially in a highly appreciated marketplace. What we're seeing is we call the candle burning at both ends. And if you imagine the candle being your, your return, Michael, okay? And the bigger the candle is, the better the, your return. But as the marketplace uh, shifts and, and increases and, and appreciates, you have a candle that's burning with lower cap rates, right? It's burning. And then you have the higher interest rates. So eventually this candle gets smaller and smaller to represent your smaller return. And so we've been seeing this even the last couple of years as cap rates go from, you know, six and a half to six to, to five and three quarters to five to out here in California, four and a half, 4.75. And at a certain point, your ratio is of what you borrow at and what your cap rate are, 
are equal, and, and at a certain point, your cash flow is, is tough. The other part about it is even the rapid, rapid rental appreciation in the number, last number of years, which have driven values very high. So the price risk per foot and the price per unit are also at some record levels as well. And so this feels like, honestly, a little bit like 05, 06 all over again in a lot of ways. Now, the greater markets, I, we think, are, are, not, are pretty stable in, in the sense of we don't feel like 08 is going to happen again. But as far as the run-up, it, it's very similar to peak levels, if not exceed peak levels at this point. And so what we, what we try to um, recommend is don't overpay for a property just because of uh, tax deferral. Are there other ways to defer the tax? The last point I'll make on the 1031 is your depreciation schedule travels. Okay, so when you buy a property, the number one reason to own commercial real estate, as you alluded to earlier, is the depreciation write-off versus the income. This is something that's unique and very favorable for building long-term wealth. But eventually, if you own property long enough and you've done multiple 1031 exchanges, that depreciation will go to zero. And once it goes to zero, the only way to get a new depreciation schedule is to buy a new property, but also buy a bigger property, maybe take on more debt to do that. So the depreciation schedule traveling is not a good thing, which leads us into the greater macroeconomics that's going on. According to the American Bankers Association, about $17 trillion will pass from one generation to the next in the next 20 years. And this is known as the largest wealth transfer in the history of the planet. So about 10,000 baby boomers turn 65 every, every single day, and they really feel trapped, and they feel stressed, and they don't necessarily want to start over with new toilets, new trash, new liability. They actually don't necessarily want to do a 1031 exchange. They need options and tax deferral as well as liquidity and diversification, which again launched me into the deferred sales trust. So I'll pause there because I know I just said a lot. Yeah. Okay. So I, I see that most people know about the tax deferred of a 1031 exchange. I think that's what we've been talking about. You know, for, for those that are uh, thinking about selling, uh, people know about that. Now, you just mentioned several problems with 1031 exchange. One is the pressure to buy something. Time frame. It's it's very easy to fail in a 1031 exchange, which creates a pretty massive taxable event, which leads you to, to do things you probably wouldn't do otherwise. And then, so you mentioned another alternative, which, which is this DST thing. Can you, let's talk about that. What is this uh, this DST? Yes. So first of all, the deferred sales trust, not to be confused with a Delaware statutory trust, a Delaware statutory trust is kind of like a TIC or a mutual fund of, of properties. It's actually just another form of a 1031 exchange. So that's the first thing we also we want to clarify off the bat. The deferred sales trust is not a 1031 exchange. In fact, it's just an installment sale and it's a manufactured installment sale and where uh, the trust itself will buy a property from the seller and immediately sell it to the cash buyer lined up. So let's walk through a scenario here. So let's say Michael's selling a $10 million property, he had $4 million in tax, if he does no kind of tax deferral. Michael has a couple options. He can do a traditional 1031, which we talked about. He can also do a traditional seller carry back, where he says, hey, Mr. Buyer, give me, give me $2 million down and I'll carry a note for $8 million. So Michael, in that scenario, if the buyer gave you $2 million down and you carried a note for $8 million, how much constructive receipt did you receive? Uh, or even million. actual receipt is a better way. Yep, $2 million, you got it. So you owe tax on that $2 million, but that other $8 million is in a deferral state, so you don't owe tax yet on that $8 million. Now, hypothetically, let's just say that buyer came to you and said, hey, Michael, I'm going to give you a zero down payment. Would you carry a note for $10 million? Now, I know you wouldn't do that deal because he has no skin in the game, but just walk through this with me, right? 
He gave you a zero down payment. Michael, would you carry a note for 10? In that scenario, how much actual receipt did you receive? None. None. So if you've received none at this point, how much taxes due today? None. You got it. Okay. And I'm so glad I'm answering this correctly. So thank you so much for making it easy on me. <laughs> yeah. You know, you're doing well. You're doing well. Not, these are not trick questions. So that's what we do with the deferred sales trust. So we have a cash buyer lined up for 10 million and Michael says, yeah, I want to sell it to that buyer, but I don't want to get hit with the tax and I maybe don't want to do a 1031. So introduce the trust. This trust is a single entity business trust and we can call it uh, Michael Blank's deferred sales trust. And it's going to jump in right before close of escrow. But what it's going to do is going to say, hey, Michael, I'm going to give you a zero down payment in exchange for a note for $10 million, But I'm going to immediately sell it to this cash buyer that's already lined up by your broker for $10 million, to who's going to put the funds into the trust. And the smoke clears. The buyer takes title the same way he would have either way. Now, the funds are sitting in the trust, Michael, okay? Now, you have a zero down payment and you have a note for $10 million. So how much tax is due today for you, Michael? I would say it's none. You got it. Now the trust bought it for 10 million and sold it for 10 million. So how much capital gains tax does the trust owe? None. You got it, because there's no gain, correct? So the next question is, where are the funds held? But before we go there, we got to make sure you understand exactly what happened. It was an installment sale. It was a creative way in how we did the installment sale. But it's not anything new in the sense of, hey, try this new thing out. The Deferred Sales Trust, by the way, over 2,000 trusts have been closed. It's over a 23-year track record. It survived 14 IRS audits, all no-change audits. So when any, anyone ever comes to you with a new tax deferral strategy or a new idea, a couple questions you want to ask. The first one is, how many have been done? How many IRS audits have been survived? And what is the tax law? So the tax law is actually IRSC 453, which is just seller carryback law. It goes back to the 1920s. Again, we've survived 14 no-change audits. One of the largest transactions was over $100 million. Trust me, the IRS wanted to find a way to find a hole in the structure, but there was no hole there. And then also uh, our tax attorneys that have created the structure, they provide audit defense as well for the life of the trust. They stay behind their work. So that's in short what the Deferred Sales Trust is and a little bit about the track record. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. So the funds then, though, are sitting in this trust. So it is it is something where I can't get my grubby little hands at it. But how can I use that? So the money is sitting there. There's no taxable. Again, I can't get at the But I, what can I do with that money? Yes. So sort of like a self-directed IRF, there are some options, okay? Now, you're working with a trustee, and that's actually my role in this transaction. I'm a third-party, unrelated trustee. And to maintain the integrity of the trust, there has to be this third party, it's kind of like a custodian, if you will, that keeps you from having, when you say your grubby little hands, meaning actual or constructive receipt, right? So we want to make sure we maintain that barrier because if at a certain point you receive that or the IRS deems that you have constructive receipt, they're going to ask for the tax to be due. So first of all, we have over 500 financial advisors across the U.S. You can hire your own financial advisor if you'd like to to manage the money. And they would work with the trustee and they would put it into a diversified portfolio of liquid investments. You know, it's a mixture of stocks, bonds, mutual funds of your choice, REITs. But what I like best about it, because remember, I'm a commercial real estate person by trade and by passion and it's in my blood. So my focus has always been cash flow, passive income through commercial real estate. So I own with other sponsors and multifamily, senior housing, retail, medical office. 
And so what I love about the Deferred Sales Trust is that up to 80% of the funds can be directed to syndication deals or your own deal. And let's walk through how that would work. So let's say it closed tomorrow, 10 million's in the trust, and it's earning a nice, a nice return. By the way, most of our notes earn with our financial advisors about 8%. After fees, they net about 6.5%. So as long as you're living just off the interest, you're only paying ordinary income on those interest payments. Now, if you dip into that principle, that's when the capital gains would be triggered in that given year. But it would only be for the amount that you receive. So let's just say you're like, hey, you know what? I'd like to have a 12% return on my money. We go, great, Michael. It's only earning eight after fees is six and a half. The remaining, you know, six or so would dip into the principle, which you would pay capital gains in that given year. So the key is what are you receiving? Is it capital gains tax based upon principle or is it ordinary income? Okay. And that's when the tax would be due. But again, you can direct it to commercial real estate. And this is really the power of this. We like to say we like to sell high and buy low. And that's what our parents always taught us to do. So remember the 1031 is within 45, 180. You're typically selling high and then 180 days later, you're buying higher and maybe at a higher interest rate. And so you're going, wow. And also you're maybe only in a single asset or a single city. What's beautiful about the Deferred Sales Trust is that $10 million can be diversified across, let's say, eight different properties. Let's say you put a million into this syndication over here, those mobile home parks, a million into this apartment deal of your own, a million into another apartment syndication over here. So it can diversify across commercial real estate, across product types, within any time frame. You can do it day one or day 181 or five years from now, which is probably the single most powerful part about the flexibility of the Deferred Sales Trust. Most of the time, we know when it's a seller's market. Today is a seller's market. It's a great time to sell. It's not a good time to buy by default. Now, it doesn't mean you can't find deals, and great if you can. We encourage you to do that. And by the way, the Deferred Sales Trust is a backup plan for a failed 1031 exchange too. So a lot of times when working with clients, we're going out, we're shopping for deals, we're making offers, we're trying to lock down great deals. But if for some reason it doesn't work out, we have a default for this. Interesting. Okay. So a few questions here following up to that. So when exactly is there a tax that needs to be paid with the DST? So when you're back in the example, I have $10 million in this DST and I actually find another project where I can deploy that $10 million and I'm going to buy that. Uh, I'm basically going to upgrade to another apartment building. Is that something I can do or is that a taxable event? Right. So it's not a pause for the 1031, right? The 1031 is very very uh, specific in its timing. So I can't park in the deferred sales trust, wait five years, and then 1031 out of my deferred sales trust, right? So you're essentially, you're kind of picking your horse. Although we do do what's called bifracture 1031 exchanges, especially for mortgage over basis issues, where we're doing a partial 1031 exchange and a partial deferred sales trust. We're actually doing that right now for a deal out of Atlanta. It's a $7.3 million multifamily deal. And he has some mortgage over basis. And so we're going we're gonna to take care of that through a Delaware, a small portion through the Delaware. It's going to wipe out that debt requirement. He's also buying uh, a spec land deal for another part of it. And the other third is going to go into the deferred sales trust. So it's flexible in that you don't have to put all of it into the deferred sales trust or all of it into a 1031. You could do some or each. Now, the question you asked is, well, when is the tax due? Well, it's the same thing for the 1031. So Michael, if you're doing multiple 1031 exchanges, when is the tax due? Well, the tax is due when you stop doing the 1031 and you take actual receipt of the cash, right? So the same thing here. 
as long as you're not taking the principal balance and you're keeping it in a deferral state, it's just deferred. Now, most of our notes go for 10 years, and this is the beauty of this trust, is after 10 years, you can renew for another 10, and then renew for another 10. And let's say you pass away, your kids can inherit your position, and they can continue to do that. So we, we have a saying around here, it goes like this, most of our clients like to pay the tax the second day to never, and the reason behind that is we feel that if you can keep the wealth in your estate, and with your family and with your community, you can give more and be a blessing more versus the government, which tends to waste it pretty quickly. So that's kind of also the why behind what we do, what we do. So, so just so I understand clearly, if, if I keep the principal in the DST and use the entire 10 million, then there's no taxable event. Is that right? Because I'm keeping it in DST. Yeah. So if, as long as it's invested yeah. and deferred, right, yeah. you're fine. It's just, it can be even compounding. Some of our, our clients say, you know, I don't need the income today. Let it just compound and build, and I might start tapping into it when I, when I need it. The other part about what's really unique is when you direct it to that new deal, remember I talked about the depreciation schedule traveling on a 1031? Well, since you're starting a new deal, partnering with your deferred sales trust, it's a brand new depreciation schedule. Okay, so let's say it's a $10 million deal again, you fully depreciated out of it, and you bought another $10 million deal, you know, on a 1031, you have still no depreciation. But if you bought that same deal through your deferred sales trust, you have a brand new $10 million worth of depreciation. So this is very, very powerful for long-term owners you know, who don't want a 1031 and they feel like the depreciation is, is, is completely, it's, it's gone, right? So that's another advantage of the deferred sales trust over the 1031. So a lot of times we are syndicating deals, right? And so my understanding is that a 1031 exchange is, is kind of an all or nothing. In other words, if I wanted to 1031 exchange from one into another, I would have to get all of the limited partners to agree to kind of 1031 exchange into something else. The likelihood of that happening is zero, essentially. Mm -hmm. So what are the options there? If I as a syndicator and I want, you know, I get 40% of my investors going, hey, this is the greatest thing and I want 1031 exchange and the other 60% want their money back. What options right. do we have as syndicators? Yeah, the deferred sales trust tool is great for syndicators, right? Because there's two things they're trying to do. They're trying to attract new wealth and they're trying to preserve and create new wealth in the partnerships, okay? Let's start with the attract part and then let's walk through some of the mechanics of, for a syndicator. So the deferred sales trust, unlike a 1031 exchange, applies to primary homes, businesses, commercial real estate, artwork, collectibles, anything really that has value, that has capital gains tax or been highly appreciated, we work for the 1031 has been in this new uh, recent tax law changes. It's been basically restricted to just commercial real estate. Okay. So as a, a syndicator, I want to open up options for new partners and new potential investors to sell their illiquid assets and move into cash flow, passive commercial real estate with the depreciation advantages. Okay. So that's the first thing that I would just want to make sure that the syndicators understand it becomes the number one way to help people defer and invest into your deals, okay? Uh, the next thing is you, you mentioned the 1031 exchange. So yeah, generally speaking, most of the syndication groups I work with before the deferred sales trust, basically they would just say, everyone bring your new money and then I'll pay you out what we make and you go all pay your individual tax. And also they have what's called carried interest. Sometimes they put some money in, but most of it is earned through what's called sweat equity, right? That's their influence, it's their finding the deal, it's managing the deal. And they have a percentage of ownership there too. So the deferred sales trust, which, what's great about it, is not only does it defer the carried interest, but also let's just say there's 10 partners. 
and five of them want to cash out, no problem. The other five want to do a deferred sales trust, no problem, right? So it's customizable to each individual investor based upon their own risk tolerance and their own capital gains tax needs. So not only are you creating value to attract new investors, but you're also creating value on the exit. And the third part to that is once they exit into the deferred sales trust, defer that tax, guess what? They can direct that to your next syndication deal, right, right away. So you're, you're not having to raise even more money for, for more new investors. And so hopefully that all makes sense. And I'll, I'll pause there to make sure that's, that's, that sinks in. I'm hearing you say is you can actually tax defer part of the entity. Half the investors want out and other half want to essentially defer the taxes. And you can do it with a DST. And the question becomes is why ever do a 1031 exchange? Yeah, well, what are the pros and cons of, of the deferred sales trust? So the first thing is, you know, it's, a new, it's, it's still new to people, right? And just like the 1031 was new in the 80s and the 90s and, and then all, now everyone knows it. It's still new to people. They're kind of like, what is this thing? It sounds too good to be true. How do I know my funds are protected? Um, so let's cover a few of those things. Again, we already kind of talked about the track record of the 2000 closes, the 14 no change IRS audits. The funds also only ever move with your signature. Uh, we, have, we have partners with some, some really large banks and also uh, the funds go through TD Ameritrade, Charles Schwab, Wells Fargo, your own financial advisor. If they join our strategic partnership, they can manage the funds, no problem. Uh, we work with mostly independent financial advisors. And, but the key is, you know, once the funds are there, they're only ever, ever move with the note holder in this situation, their signature. The next thing is, is it an audit risk? Am I doing something out of the ordinary illegal? And the answer is no. And and actually, if you compare it against the 1031 exchange, which is the number one advantage for the 1031 exchange is it maintains the stepped up basis, okay? The deferred sales trust does not. So remember when we talked about the depreciation reschedule, traveling? Well, because it travels is also part of the reason why it gets a stepped up basis. So, and a great thing about a stepped up basis is Michael has that $10 million deal. At some point, he passes away, and his, his wife does too, and the kids can get, it steps up to the new, new value, and they can sell at that point and be tax-free, whereas the deferred sales trust, since we sold it beforehand and it's, the real estate is gone, we no longer have a stepped-up basis, but we're still in a tax-deferral state. So pros and cons to both of those, but just realize that's the number one reason why you would continue to 1031 exchange, or sometimes we have clients or prospects that come to us and they have some health challenges and they're elderly. And at that point, we'll say, you know what? The stepped up basis falls are still in place. We recommend you hold on because you can walk away tax-free and not have to pay us fees and the closing costs. So every, everyone's a little bit unique to that circumstance. However, the, the one that's um, extra interesting with the Deferred Sales Trust is we can actually move the funds outside of the taxable estate. So for ultra high net worth clients who are worth more than $22 million, if they're married, anything inside of their taxable estate will be hit with what's called a death tax. And so let's say someone's worth $52 million and they have 22 millions exempt, that $30 million would be hit with 40% estate death tax. The 1031 does not take care of that. Although they get a stepped up basis, if it's still within inside the taxable estate, they're gonna get hit with 40%. So that's, that's the next, I guess, DST 2.0 that's very powerful to move the funds outside of the taxable estate and save the kids 40% on that. So I'll pause there again because I know that's a lot. So the stepped up basis, why is that important in your consideration? So with a DST, you don't get the stepped up basis. With a 1031 exchange, you do. It sounds like it has something to do with the death tax. Can you explain the importance of that and the consideration that goes into it? 
Yeah. So if you're worth, if you're single and you're 11 million, your worth, your net worth is 11 million or less. Okay. And you're doing 1031 exchanges. That's great. But keep in mind this recent tax law, the government, they have like 22 plus trillion in debt and they're trying to figure out a way to pay for all this debt. And so they're proposing things like, Hey, let's take away the 1031 exchange or Hey, let's limit the stepped up basis or Hey, let's get rid of the stepped up basis altogether. So they're trying to figure out ways to pay for all of this debt. Okay, so the first thing to understand is, although the stepped up basis is in, is in place today, it may or may not be in the future. Okay, so just keep, keep that in mind. If you're holding on just because of that, it's a risk you're involving. The other thing you're involving too is, you may not sell, be able to sell at the right time. You know, there's something to be said about selling high and being able to buy low. You know, if you wait for that stepped up basis, the, by the time they sell, it could also be lower too. So, but again, the key thing is if it gets stepped up to the new market value and your kids, your heirs can sell and walk away basically tax-free, okay? Now, it's $22 million if you're married. But again, if you're above those numbers, single or married, then you're hitting something different. It's called the death tax, you know? It's no longer just to do a stepped-up basis. They're going to look at your overall estate, your overall value, what's inside of it. If it's above that number, you're going to owe 40%. Gotcha. Now, what are the costs related to a DST versus a 1031 exchange? Great question. So the 1031, pretty simple. You're looking at probably $750 to $1,000. Maybe some go down to $500. It's a one-time fee. It's easy. They're out. But the deferred sales trust, there are ongoing fees. And there's a reason for that. The trustee must be in it for business purpose, must be able to make a profit in order to maintain the integrity of the structure. So we charge, our company is about 50 basis points, about half of 1%, okay? And it's recurring once a year. So remember when I mentioned most of the time the notes earn eight and after fees they pay six and a half percent? Well, that's part of that. Half, 50 basis points is part of that. The other 1% is generally the financial advisor. So based upon where and how the funds are invested or how big the amount is, they can be 50 basis points to one point. So those are the recurring costs that happen. Now, if they want to go into commercial real estate, you know, let's say you had that $10 million deal and you wanted to direct $8 million to a commercial real estate deal, right, which you manage and you operate and you're the managing member of it and you're partnering with your trust. In that sense, the advisor is no longer managing the money. So that 1% would go to zero. However, the trustee fee would go from 50 basis points to one point. Okay, so now you're paying 1% recurring. And so those are kind of the fees there. The other 20% would stay with the advisor. And by the way, the reason for that is kind of to basically keep a reserve and to, to not put so much risk outside of the trust because we haven't had any trusts fail in the 23 years. And so the last fee is just for the tax attorneys. Those are one-time fees, okay? So on the first million, it's 1.5%. On anything above that, it's about 1.25%. Okay, so you're looking at 15,000 on that first million and you're looking at 1.25 on that next 9 million. If the deals get really big, sometimes they're willing to uh, to put that down a little bit lower. All right, great. Let's, but that's up to let's, them to let's wrap it up because we, we covered a lot of things here. So what's kind of your key takeaway here from what we talked about? What do you want people to remember about the DST? When to use it? And when is it good for? When, when maybe is, is it yeah. not? Yeah, so start with the why. What's, what's your passive cash flow real estate plan and how are you going to get there? Right, and what does that involve, and what are, what are the tools and the value add strategies that you're going to be able to add to your whether you're a syndicator, whether you're uh, just a client looking to sell and create and preserve your wealth? 
I think you've got to start with where you're at and what your goals are and then find out what tool works best to get there. And we just feel that the 1031 exchange, it's like a big sledgehammer and the deferred sales trust is, you know, like a smaller, you know, screwdriver or different. They both do tax deferral, but they may accomplish your goals in a different way. And so uh, I would just encourage them to get educated on the structure, reach out to us, go to our website, capitalgainstaxsolutions.com. We have our YouTube channel as well. Reach out to me directly. And we really just want to educate you on the strategy. And once you have the tool in hand, we want you to know it as well as the 1031 exchange, you decide when it's best, best for you to use that tool. That's awesome. So uh, just repeat that your website again. How can people find out more about the DSD and, and get in touch with you? Yeah, just search in Google capitalgainstaxsolutions.com or go to YouTube and, and, and search capitalgainstaxsolutions.com. And those are the, probably the best two places. I have you know, Facebook and Bigger Pockets as well and LinkedIn as well. So you, we can connect on all of those. And we have free webinars that you can watch and replay where we actually walk through visually how this works. And then you'll get a, you get a chance to understand it. And then, um, yeah, find out if it works for you. If you want to give it a shot, then uh, we'd love the opportunity to help you out. And by the way, we don't get paid a dime unless the client decides to do the deal. So we do the education. Our tax attorneys, you know, will get all the legal work, everything prepared. If for some reason the deal doesn't close or the buyer backs out or whatever, the client just decides, I don't want to do, I don't want to do the deferred sales. That's no problem. We don't charge any hourly rates. We only ever get paid if and when the trust closes. And if I can leave you with one last story, it was in 2010. This is kind of a unique one. A gentleman owned 5,000 units and he sold in 2007 about 1,000 units. And he goes, Brett, I paid $35 million in capital gains tax because I couldn't find a 1031 exchange. And we kind of saw the writing on the wall, but it was, we got hammered. We got absolutely hammered. So he goes, and this is 2010 when I talked about this. He goes, you're telling me that I could have sold and moved those funds into the deferred sales trust put it in conservative bonds and then redirect it back into commercial real estate when the market, you know, fell by 20, 30, 40%. And the answer is absolutely. We're not blazing a new trail. The trail's already been blazed. We already have the track record. We're closing the deals and we just want to spread the message of this tool and help anyone that we can. It's been really fascinating, Brett, because one of the hangups I've always had is how do we as syndicators defer our capital gains with 1031 exchanges? Can't be done. I've kind of resigned my fact that, hey, everybody's going to pay taxes whenever we sell. And now this gives everyone a way out. So thank you so much for coming on the show and, and sharing this with us. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Michael. Oh, man. Finally, a solution for deferring taxes in a syndication. This is really cool. Now, I've heard of the DST before, but it was like this mysterious thing, you know, and I always thought that it was like for the super high net worth individuals, you know, with $100 million. And this is when you use this thing. And now, you know, it's not the case. It's been done so many times. It's not for the high net individual. It's for someone who actually wants to defer taxes in a syndication, for example, or as a plan B when the 1031 threatens to fail. And we've seen that it makes us do a natural act sometimes. You're like, my gosh, if it's going to fail, we're going to have all of these tax gains. But I'm really, really excited about that because this gives us now a chance to defer taxes, even if, if not all of the investors want to do a 1031 exchange. So that's super, super cool. So I'm really glad he came on the show. It's just an example of how knowledge is power. Like, for example, I had just a, a few weeks ago, I had Damien Lupo on. He talked about the QRP as an alternative to investing with your self-directed IRA. And in fact, it's not just an alternative, it's 
better. It's much better than investing in IRA. And since that episode, I mean, he, he just texted me yesterday saying, oh my gosh, people are really taking advantage of this QRP thing because it's so much more flexible. It's cheaper. It's You can sign your own documents. You can borrow money without penalty. Like, it's crazy. Like, it's same thing with the DST. Like, where's this been all the time? You know, it's like, well, it's been around for a long time. It's just new to me. This is an example of our knowledge is power. And I was reminded of this uh, recently, you know, some of our mentoring students and, you know, who come on board, you know, kind of maybe believing that they can do this, having no idea how to do it, never done it before, and just found out another two of them got deals on a contract. And it's just so, so exciting when you add a little, you know, some belief, some affirmations, and you mix some knowledge into it. And encourage networking and and they come up with these, uh, you know, do their first deals are so exciting. And uh, if you want to check out a, a mentoring, it may not be for you. But if you want to schedule a call with us, it's at uh, themichaelblank.com forward slash mentor. Uh, I'd be remiss to not mention that. And a lot of these students are going to be at Dealmaker Live end of July, uh, July 26, 27. I have three of them actually presenting their first deals. Really cool to be inspired by someone who's just done their first deal. Didn't think it was possible before. Did the first deal. How do they do it? How do they find it? How do they finance it? How are they raising money for it? So, uh, and we have, uh, and so these are people you've never heard of before because it's Dealmaker Live. It's real people doing real deals. But we also have people you certainly have heard before. Robert Helms of the Real Estate Guys, Joe Fairless, Corey Peterson, Adam Adams. We have the author of The Miracle Morning, Hal Elrod, who will be keynoting as well. Really excited to have him. His book really made a big difference in my life. And uh, he's going to be on the podcast soon as well. So that's going to be themichaelblank.com forward slash event to grab tickets. The VIPs unfortunately sold out. Sorry about that. That'd be a really cool opportunity to hang out with me and some of the speakers and Hal Elrod. Uh, those are unfortunately gone now, but that's okay. And uh, so you make sure you grab some tickets before they go as well. All right, guys, hopefully you found that useful. Put that in your toolbox, the DST. Uh, until next time, catch you later. Thanks for listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Block. For more free podcasts, articles, and videos, go to themichaelblanc.com. There, you can also download the free ebook, The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. Till next time.